Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast jamesbondaz.co.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbondaz, and you can find the link in the show notes. Nanu, Nanu, and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where we have reached the letter N. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we explore the characters and creators of the 007 films that fall under the 14th letter of the alphabet, it's my nearsighted next-door neighbour, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. What? 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 (laughs) And next to him, it's the nimble and neurotic Mr. Tom Wheatley. Is this anything to do with Bond, or are you just doing a, words that begin with N? It's words that begin with the letter N. Um, so that's why you went for Mork and Mindy? That's why I went for Nanu, Nanu, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's people who probably started listening to this, got to about five seconds and went, no, this isn't the right podcast. This isn't for me. This is not for me. <laughs> um, yeah, little Mork and Mindy reference there for the, uh, for the over 35s. Uh, we've finished the letter M. Um, as uh, if you've not listened to this podcast before, we're going through the alphabet, um, working, looking at all the different people who worked on Bond in an A to Z format. Um, and the letter N takes us past the halfway point in the alphabet. Excitingly, mm-hmm. so we've done half the movies, half the letter of the alphabet. Um, so whether it's glass, glass half full or half empty. That's for up to you to decide. Um, well, us, us two. We decide. No, the listeners. The listeners. Oh, right. Fine. <laughs> they're, I'm sure they're uh, emptying their glasses at this point. Um, <laughs> so on this episode, we have a couple of notable noisemakers, a notorious villain, a newly minted double O agent, and a couple of notorious henchmen, on which, over to you, Mr. Wheatley. You can tell you've got kids. <laughs> Um, right, okay, so uh, N is for Knack. Nick Knack. <laughs> is that right? Is his surname Knack? <laughs> well, that's what it's, that's what it's down on um, is, is uh, IMDb, as I think. Uh, so he's Mr. Knack, Nick Knack. Nicholas Nick Knack. Knack. You call him yeah, Nicholas Knack. I don't Knack. know if any, Give any listeners know whether Knack is his surname, please. Please let us know. Uh, so, Nick Knack, played by Herve, Herve Villachez, 
um, who we will all know as one of the most memorable Bond villains in the series uh, from The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, Nick Knack is, of course, the assistant to Scaramanga, who basically is, is sort of is just there to do anything Scaramanga wants. He's his butler, he's a... Um, he does the house, he makes all the food, um, and also he helps out with all the sort of criminal activities that go on. He's the guy who really organises everything. He His role is interesting because Scaramanga's basically hired him and said, if you can find somebody who can kill me, you get a load of money. So, um, Nick Knack, at the start of the film, we see... Um, the uh, I can't remember his name is now the the uh, Rodney that's it Rodney at the start the gangster who tries to kill Scaramanga comes to his lair and um, yeah obviously Scaramanga kills him but he's a he's he's been hired by Nick Knack because um, Nick Knack wants to find somebody that can kill him um, it's a it's a strange yes. setup isn't it yeah so I think it's a quite an interesting one it's a nice novel concept it's basically just sets the tone that Scaramanga is really so focused in his life that he just has to be the best killer. Like, he's hired somebody to try and kill him. Uh, although Nick Knack himself isn't actually allowed to kill him, he has to hire someone to do it. Um, so, yeah, throughout throughout the film, uh, Nick Knack has got a pretty big part. He's in quite a lot of it um, and sort of potters about, doing spying for Scaramanga. He sees um, Bond in bed with Scaramanga's um, lady friend, played by uh, Maud Adams, and um, then reports back, or seemingly reports back to Scaramanga about her um, betraying him. And then later on, he is the classic post-main villain death scene baddie, where we see him come back on the boat and try to kill Bond again, um, where he starts throwing champagne glasses, I think, um, at Bond, and eventually Bond puts him in a suitcase and straps him up to the top of the the mast on the boat uh, so we don't actually know if he actually dies but that is the last we see of knickknack so um you can also play knickknack in the game nightfire in multiplayer mode i didn't know that um but what i one thing i do remember is i think the creators of goldeneye got knickknack confused with odd job when they created goldeneye because they made odd job really really short and he isn't really really <laughs> short i see i think they mixed him they mixed the characters up a bit um, so yeah, he's, he probably sh- he was in the discussion phases of Goldeneye, but um, Oddjob eventually um, played the tiny character. Um, he's also in a 2015 Heineken um, advert. Don't know if you ever saw this. I remember him popping up at the time to promote the uh, to promote Spectre. Yes. So Nick Knack was also um, the inspiration for, or possibly the inspiration for a character that Villachez played later called Tattoo uh, on the show called Fantasy Island which I've never seen but I've heard a lot about it and he came he had a, a famous catchphrase called the plane the plane um, which again <laughs> I don't know anything about uh, but also Nick Knack is by f- uh, definitely the inspiration for Mini-Me in um, Austin Powers so yeah that's Nick Knack um, Herve Villachez is a French guy um, he was born in 1983 he died in 1993 um, and he was also a really quite prolific painter as well. He was, it, it, his first love was painting, um, and that's sort of how he got into the creative world. Uh, he was born in Nazi occupied France uh, in 1943, and he was born with dwarfism, dwarfism 
and they try to cure him a few times in different places, but they, they obviously um, couldn't. Uh, I think his dad was a surgeon as well, so he was sort of linked into that world. So um, tried to try to um, find a solution for that. Um, he was bullied quite a lot at school, apparently. Um, as a result, he got really into painting as, as sort of a way to get away from it. Um, and he went to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts um, art school, uh, where he studied art. Uh, and he became apparently the youngest art- artist ever to um, to have his work displayed in the Museum of Paris. So, yeah, all, all things I didn't know about Villachez. Um, he eventually moved to New York, taught himself English um, and started working, uh, getting started building his career. He worked as an artist originally and a painter, did some photography as well. And then he started acting and he was in um, a play called The Young Master Dante. Um, he was also a model. He did some modelling for National Lampoon. I'm presuming that's the magazine. Um, and then he started working in films. So he did quite a few films. I don't really know any of these films. Chapacqua, um, Fon, Carnival of Blood. Um, oh, sorry, The Adventures of Spire and Fon, Carnivals of Blood. Uh, and he was in Oliver Stone's first film called Seizure in 1974. Uh, apparently he's also uh, in the running to play a character in Dune uh, when it was uh, in pre-production in 1971, but that was cancelled. Um, and then after all of that, he eventually got cast in Man with the Golden Gun, um, which and apparently around that time he was really poor, so apparently he was living in his car at the time. Um, so and he, to make money, he used to work as a rat catcher's assistant, um, which is interesting because he's obviously quite similar to the size of a rat, um, so it's probably quite difficult. Um, so that eventually got the got the role in the Man with the Golden Gun. Um, and there's there's not too much about what he said about working on it, but according to Christopher Lee, it seemed like it was he was really happy with it. It was like a high point of his life, and as you could probably imagine, it based on his previous career goals and wanting to get into the world of culture and acting, pretty big deal to get to get that role. And he had a he has quite a big part for a a henchman. Um, so yeah, he's in it quite a lot. So pretty pretty big role. And at that time, that film was really successful. So yeah, he did a good job. Um, there's lots of stories about Villachez. You probably know quite a lot of these. A little bit of a womanizer. Um, love the ladies. And sorry, love the ladies. Love the ladies. So there's some quite good stories. We, you, listeners probably know some of these anyway because some of them are quite famous. But um, he got into quite a lot of uh, problems on uh, when he was working on the film. Uh, apparently, when they uh, were in uh, going to, from Hong Kong to uh, Hong Kong to Bangkok, they're really strict about bringing in sex workers from um, into Bangkok because obviously that's their industry. So they don't want to bring in ex- ones from outside. So he turned up um, with a, a Chinese uh, lady from Hong Kong and he had to get them to, to sign him off and um, Broccoli had to get involved and sort of get it all sorted out. So he wasn't very happy with that. Um, and then there's a, the very famous story about Maud Adams. Do you remember this one? Go on. You'll know it when I say it. Um, so they were they were filming, and um, well, she was talking about he would always come back in the morning with women under his arms, cigars in his mouth, and just be ready to work for the day after a, a big night with whatever he was up to. Um, and he said to her one day, "I would love to uh, f you, Maud." <laughs> uh, and then she replied, 
if you do, I shall be very annoyed. And if I ever discover you have, I shall be very annoyed. Yeah, Cle- nice, nice, uh, nice one from Mordet. Um, but uh, she also spoke a bit about how he was quite introspective as well. So he he was he, he like he really loved doing his artwork, and he would make he'd do a lot of drawings, and even put them under the door of her hotel room. He said that he used charcoals, very sim- simple drawings. Um, but uh, other stories include um, he was he he was flirting with different women, but one was Elaine uh, Sh- uh, Shreyek, uh, who worked in continuity on Mamma Golden Gun. Um, and he apparently he would get, grab her, her typewriter during uh, in between takes and write love letters to her using it. Um, and and uh, apparently uh, Hamilton actually talked a bit about this, and he says um, her uh, has commissioned a plaster cast of his entire body. When they saw it, the plaster cast uh, uh, said the plasterer said, um, "Gov, he's got a schlong like I've never uh, ever effing seen in my effing life." So yeah, so uh, Hamilton t- talks a bit about. It. He says uh, that he wasn't surprised when Villache said, uh, "I am so tired, guy. Please do not use me this morning. I was up all bloody night." Um, so other things he's done as well. He, uh, as well as being an actor, he was an active member of a movement in the 70s and 80s in California that helped with child abuse. He was very focused on sort of um, helping to resolve child abuse and and. Um, Apparently, he went to the crime scenes himself to to comfort the victims. Um, yeah, so he and uh, some some people have people also said that when he was at these scenes or when he was subjected to the people that were child abusers or accused of child abusing, he would just confront them straight away. Even though he was so small, he didn't care. He would he would go in and, and just start speaking his mind to these people. Um, interestingly, in the nineteen seventies, he. Uh, he played as Oscar the Grouch on Sesame Street, but just the legs. So his legs were sticking out the bottom of uh, the trash can. So he was playing Oscar the Grouch's legs wow. uh, when, in the scenes where Oscar had to move around. Um, but yeah, uh, by, apparently he was a bit of a difficult actor to work with um, on the set of Fantasy Island. Um, and yeah, so uh, he was in some other films as well, not any that really... Um, that I know that much about. He was in something called The Forbidden Zone. He was also in Aeroplane 2, the sequel, uh, and he was in episodes of Different Strokes and Taxi. Um, and then he also became quite popular in Spain in the 1980s because he did a, apparently a very good impersonation of Prime Minister Philippe Gonzalez. <laughs> there you go. Niche. Uh, his final appearance was uh, as himself in the Ben Stiller show. I didn't even know there was a Ben Stiller show. Um so when he died in 1993, um, he, it, it's quite sad. He uh, he spoke uh, in an interview at some point um, about how he tried to. He'd, he'd done. He there'd been a lot of suicide attempts. Apparently, um, when they found him, uh, age 50, he uh, fired a shot through the glass patio door of where he was staying for, um, so his girlfriend could see him, and then he shot himself. And then he was found in the backyard. And there's a suicide note um, talking about his problems at the time. Um, and he was it's, it's largely down to him suffering from chronic pain because of... Apparently his organs are too big for his size. So he had a lot of pain because of that. So he had to sleep in a kneeling position a lot of the time um, so he could breathe uh, easily. Um, 
And then he apparently, when uh, at the time of his death, he was in negotiations with. Uh, he was going to star in Cartoon Network, a Cartoon Network show called Space Ghost Goes Coast to Coast, which he obviously never did. Um, and then one last thing that's quite interesting about him is that in 2002, Peter Dinklage plays him in uh, a documentary about his life um, based on the interview that he'd done just before his suicide, which I haven't seen. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think Dinklage was quite um, really keen on doing this for a long time. I think, check, um, what's the date on that? I think you said 2002, but I'm sure it was much more recent than that. 2012. 2012. It's called My Dinner yeah, yeah. with Hervé. Um, yes, that's it. So there we go. Bit of a... I didn't realise I had so much information on the Villachez there, but there you go. That's uh, Nicknack Her Villachez. What do you think of Nicknack? I think he's good. I think he's um, he's an interesting person to have in a film. I definitely think he. I mean, Live and Let Die. They sort of try and shake things up a bit, don't they? And um, they the 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 concept is a little bit different. Of the you know, there's no big army at the end or anything like that. So I think he's an interesting character. He definitely would have worked in the Connery film as well. I think he's a good transitional baddie bit weird works probably works better with um roger because you can you can put some stupid scenes in but um yeah, i like him what do you think yeah i think he's interesting i think um as we've said before in the sort of the the world of the hench people it's better when they're physically um you know they stand out from the crowd physically um mm. and they're quirky um and I, there is a bit of menace to him um but yeah i think yeah, he's a bit of, he's a bit of a weird character there's a lot of weird characters in in um the earlier roger moore films i think it's um, that 70s period isn't it there's a bit more um they're a bit more outlandish with uh a bit seedy a bit you're not really sure what's going on with them yeah, yeah. but you know what he's, he's competent as well yeah, yeah. so it's good yeah. to see somebody who can match bond and he runs the uh house of fun doesn't he as well he's like yeah so he's he's very much on hand to pretty cool job, yeah. Well, that bit is not the yeah. beer butler to <laughs> yeah, and the chef, but yeah, quite a cool job. He, he picked the right man though, didn't he? And Roger Moore, yeah, yeah, yeah. N is for Necros. That he hasn't got a name. There's not a, no knickknack to this one. Um, played by Andreas Viznevsky. He is. Uh, he was in The Living Daylights, and he was a trained KGB assassin, and he works for General Koskov and Brad Whitaker. He is. He's known for the, the iconic scene where he's wearing his stereo and he he's undercover as first a runner, and then as a milkman. In terms of when he's listening to that, listening to his uh, Walkman, he's listening to Where Has Everybody Gone, which was a song written by John Barry and the Pretenders. And it's mm. one of two songs performed by the Pretenders that is on the Living Daylight soundtrack, which I didn't know. Um, I guess I just never really thought about it before. And so that um, that song, there's actually an instrumental as well, which is played during the fight with uh, Green 4 in the MI6 safe house. And then again, when he's fighting Bond in the cargo plane. So... This is a question for you two. You might not know the answer. I don't know the answer. Is he the only henchman to have his own soundtrack? <laughs> have his own theme tune? Because I can't think of another one. Nah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I have to mull that one over 
and listeners. Yeah, if, if listeners, email in if you if you've got an answer to that because I, I, you know, every time he's on screen, that song is played either the actual song or an instrumental. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he's quite brutal actually. He's well trained. Um, he favours the strangulation as a killing technique, and the first uh, kill, I think, he actually uses the wire from his Walkman. <laughs> Uh, so of must, course he does. He must have a strong wire. <laughs> couldn't they, do they it. made pretty. It was a, it was a Sony, wasn't it? It's Sony Walkman. Yeah, you couldn't yeah, do that yeah, these days with wireless, could you? He'd have no chance. Oh, he'd be useless. Yeah. So, like I say, he disguises himself. Loads of disguises, by the way. It's really impressive. And voice changes. He does yeah. a, an American accent at the, the beginning when he's a runner. Then he does a, a Cockney accent when he's the. Um, the milkman, and then he has a posh accent when he after he's killed Green Four. Um, really, really, I mean, if they should make a. If they're going to do a spin-off, <laughs> this is the spin-off I want to see. I'd watch across the spin-off. Yeah, definitely. Um, like a Mister Ben type thing where he dresses up a diff- in a different. Uh, yes, really. The, I don't think that's but the not, angle that. But not, not, but not like that. No, not where he just has a big wardrobe. <laughs> big wardrobe. Dresses up as a milkman one week, next week. The thing about Necros. Is probably that he's also a trained killer, not just the fact he dresses up as other people. Mm. I think he's yeah, still need the killing. <laughs> <laughs> Necros kills Saunders at Station V in Vienna. Played by uh, Wheatley. Can't remember. Tom Wheatley. He's played by Tom Wheatley. Oh, oh it's Tom Wheatley. Oh, that's Saunders. Oh, very good. Good, good, good one. Uh, Thomas Wheatley, actually. Thomas Wheatley. Sorry, sorry. There you go. Not related. Um, so Necros actually love mi- to get him on the podcast for a chat. <laughs> what Tom Wheatley squared? Yeah, well, they, I, and you can get the kid from Upper Hand. He was called Tom Wheatley as well. Oh, the trifecta! <laughs> yeah, very powerful group of people. <laughs> Are there any famous people called Brendan Duffy? Um, I don't think so. No, just me, just you. So yeah, he's killed at the end. They have a big fight in the car- at the back of the cargo plane on that. Um, what, what is the cargo that they're carrying? Is it dangling down the back? Can't Never even remember. Ex- explained, does it? It's just random, random cargo. Yeah, mm. and then that's where he falls to his death because uh, Bond gives him the boot. So he, he was actually voiced by a Canadian actor uh, Kerry Shale, who also voiced the parrot. Interesting <laughs> pair of characters to voice yeah um and just as a side note on the parrot it's the same parrot as in for your eyes only not playing the same parrot but it's the same actor parrot well if you've got a good parrot you're not gonna yeah well, go finding a new a one great They're... a great parrot yeah it's, it's um, a yeah. parrot called chrome who actually once belonged to diana rigg so there you go famous parrot absolutely fantastic famous parrot yeah and another this is another email and if you do know not not sure if the parrot is still alive because parrots do live for a long, long time. Mm. So there is a chance he's still out there working. You know, surely not that long. They can live up to eighty years old. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That's madness. I know. Well, that's the most interesting thing I've learned today. <laughs> so Andreas uh, Wisniewski was born in Berlin, in Germany, in nineteen fifty nine. He was a dancer before he came an act- became an actor. He made his debut in a film called Gothic in 1986, which is about Frankenstein. Then he went on to Live in Daylights. And then after that, he played Tony in Die Hard. Uh, 
which was uh, Hans Gruber's henchman. Do you remember him in this? He's good in that. Really good. Yes. Best henchman. Um, And then fast forward to 1996, and he's got a non-speaking role as uh, the companion of Max in Mission Impossible. So you can see he's sort of carved out a bit of a a niche for himself. Um, In the first Mission Impossible? Yeah, 1996, the original. Yeah, and then he does. He comes back in 2011 in Ghost Protocol, playing the same character, uh, but he's working for a different person this time. Um, And him and Ethan share a smile with each other because they clearly recognise recognise each other. Max was Um, Vanessa Redgrave. Yep. All right, Timothy Dalton's ex. So, all circular. There you go. All comes back, doesn't it? (laughs) So, yeah, he's got a bit of a niche of doing action, those sort of action films. Um, he was also in an episode of an ITV series called Ultimate Force, starring alongside Ross Kemp. Is that the first time we've mentioned Ross Kemp on the podcast? <sighs> Wait till we get I to... hope not. Yeah, I think it, I think it might be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you can try and get him in a bit more. Um, he also was in two music videos. He was in the music video for Venus... Uh, hmm. but the Banana Rama song. Oh. Um, and he also appeared as a soldier in the Elton John music video, Nikita. Hmm. And he was in an episode of The Bill in 2008, which is... Now we're seems, talking. <laughs> seems, <laughs> seems crazy. For our international listeners, The Bill was a long-running police drama serial. Soap. Might as well police soap, soap yeah. isn't it? Police soap, yeah. Don't give it any... Drama credit, <laughs> but many many actors started out their careers in uh, in the bill. It was very much a rite of passage, wasn't it? Yeah, it's uh, the like what would be the equivalent in America would be like a Columbo or a Magnum. Something no, like people not even do... as good as that. No, Columbo and Magnum got good actors. This was like they... people straight out of acting school, wasn't it? Like the first job, wherever that daytime hospital one is. I'll be sitting. No, uh, doctors. No, well, yeah. <laughs> no, I think there's an American soap called like Daytime Hospital or something. I don't know. Okay, well, yeah, whatever that it, is. It was rubbish. It was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Had a great theme tune, though, the bill. Yeah. 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 Um, so in terms of uh, the role that he played in Living Daylights, he said, he talked about Timothy Dalton, he said, I really appreciated Tim. I think he's a fabulous actor. I liked what he wanted to do with it, which was obviously important. I've been playing sort of smaller parts where you have to fit in with what the leads are doing. It was a big movie making. It was filming until everything was as good as we could get. That was great. And then he talks about his scene in the kitchen where he fights Green 4. And Green 4 was played by um, a stuntman called Bill Weston. And he said, Bill broke a finger in the fight. I also slipped once. I hit him on the cheekbone. He was knocked out. That is the hazard of the profession. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, dangerous work being a stuntman with someone who is not trained as one. Yeah, you live and learn. You do. Um, but yeah, what thoughts on Necros? Which also, by like the way, him. Necros means death in Greek, just in case. Uh... Very, uh, very good for Dalton. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Really, I, really a, a great match. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah it wouldn't, wouldn't have worked with Roger. Nothing to play off. No. No. One of the classic blonde henchmen um, archetypes, I think. Yeah. Very menacing. Yeah, yeah. Um, memorable. Wait, Aryan. Aryan. That's of, it. Yeah. That's yeah. Sort of uh, Gestapo level. That's sort of what he's played towards. Well, he was isn't it? six foot five, I think. So yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and obviously he's got he's got milk bottle grenades, which is fantastic. That's good. That's clever, isn't mm. it? Unnecessary, but clever. Yeah, yeah. A big fan. Big fan. Right. Moving on. Um, sorry, just distracted by this Roger Moore quote about knickknack that I was looking at. He called him a diseased sex maniac with unnatural lusts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Said that uh, uh, her villagers boasted of sleeping with thirty-five women. While they were while they were in Hong Kong, um, uh, he said that must have cost a lot. Well, that's what he said. He told me thirty five. I told him that that did not count as he paid for them. But he said sometimes when I pay, they refuse. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, necros and knickknack. A couple of classic henchmen there. Mm. Mm. That's a good spin off. Yeah, <laughs> knickknack and necros. <laughs> Oh yeah, I forgot one bit. He's also uh, Nick Nack's also in James Bond Junior. Just wanted to get James Bond Junior into <laughs> well, the episode. Lo and behold, I'm going to talk about James Bond Junior a bit later. Actually, so uh, oh, strap in and, and wait for that one. Um, before then, though, N is for Newman, Thomas Newman. Now, Thomas Newman is an Oscar-nominated American film comp- composer who did the scores for two James Bond films, Skyfall and Spectre. And like Tom Mankiewicz before him, uh, Thomas Newman comes from a very rich Hollywood dynasty. His father was the nine-time Oscar winner, Alfred Newman, who uh, composed over 200 film scores in his lifetime, including uh, All About Eve, How Green Was My Valley, Love Is A Many Splendid Thing, How The West Was Won, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And his last score was for Airport. Um, And he was actually nominated for an Oscar 25 times. But his, Thomas Newman's father, Alfred Newman, is most famous for composing the fanfare that you get at the start of 20th Century Fox films. You know, the one that plays before Star Wars. So uh, that's sort of the the the, uh, the heritage that Thomas Newman comes from. Um, Alf, his father, Alfred, also helped John Williams to break into Hollywood. Um, and uh, John Williams would later repay the favour. But we'll come to that uh, in a second. Um But yeah, uh, Thomas Newman's brothers, sisters and uncles are also composers. And his most famous relative that you'll have heard of uh, is the composer Randy Newman, who also has 22 Oscar nominations and two wins. Um, But yeah, Thomas Newman was born in L.A. in 1955 and uh, was basically born to be a musician. He um, was educated at the University of Southern California and then at Yale. Um, and at Yale, he met Stephen Sondheim, the famous uh, Broadway composer, and basically became his mentor. He followed Sondheim to Broadway to work in musical theatre. And his uncle T- Lionel Newman, who had succeeded his father, Alfred Newman at Fox, gave his uh, gave Thomas a, a breakthrough composing the score for an episode of a show called The Paper Chase. And then he then subsequently gave him his big break in the movies uh, by uh, getting him a job working on Return of the Jedi with John Williams. So uh, he was asked by Williams to compose uh, part of the score for Return of the Jedi, not compose, sorry, to orchestrate. And he said, he like said, he threw me a bone. I mean, he would not put it that way, but he let me orchestrate a cue from Return of the Jedi when Darth Vader dies. It was an amazing thing to do. So that was one of his big breakthroughs. And it was off the back of that that the producer, Scott Rudin, gave Thomas Newman his big break, composing the score for a 1984 film called Reckless, which apparently stars Daryl Hannah and is the directing debut of Christopher Columbus. But I've never, never heard of it. I don't know if you two have. So after that, he became very sort of uh, prolific 
film composer and worked throughout the 80s, did many scores, including, these are ones that you'll heard of, uh, Revenge of the Nerds, Desperately Seeking Susan, The Lost Boys, Scent of a Woman and The Player. But in 1994, his career just basically hit overdrive. He composed the scores for Shawshank Redemption and Little Women, and they were both Oscar nominated, giving him his first two Oscar nominations. So then he was just like in, in the A-list then. And in 1999, he teamed up with Sam Mendes for his directorial debut, American uh, Beauty, which earned Thomas Newman a Grammy and a BAFTA award. And this would be the start of a long history of collaboration between Thomas Newman and, and Sam Mendes. But before we get to Skyfall, in, in that gap between American Beauty and Skyfall, he composed the scores for The Green Mile, Finding Nemo, Wally, The Help, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and The Iron Lady. If I'm honest with you, I didn't realise he was so prolific, but there you go. So in 2012, Sam Mendes brought Thomas Newman in to compose the score for Skyfall, taking over from David Arnold, who had done the previous five films. That's right, isn't it? Because he took yeah. over yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies. Yep. So he'd done the previous five films. So bit of, quite a bold move, I would say. And Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, they were unsure, actually. They wanted to personally vet him to see if they were making... Because obviously for them, they like working with the same people over and over again. It was a big move for them as well. So they, talking about it later, Thomas Newman said, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson loved working with David Arnold on the last several Bond scores and wanted to make sure I was the right guy in their mind and that they could get along with me. So they made sure to come to see me in LA before hiring me. I enjoyed meeting them, and that was about it. So yeah, he was hired after that. And so talking about working on Bond, Thomas Newman said, everyone has an opinion on Bond but and his music, but I really didn't feel an obligation to meet up to those expectations. Or if I was going to defy them, I wanted to defy them in a way that was pleasing and compelling, as opposed to making people feel that I was doing something different for its own sake. So, yeah, I mean, it's a slightly different take on on the Bond scores following David Arnold's um, five previous films. It's quite lush uh, sort of take on Bond, but possibly a bit more classic, but also a bit experimental in places as well. Um, he didn't work with Adele on the theme song, but he does reference the Adele song in, uh, I think it's what the, the, the Komodo dragon scene. And he actually composed about 95 minutes of music for the film. We'll, rec- we'll cover this in much more detail when we get to Skyfall. But he, talking about uh, working on Bond, he said, it's not like I set out to study the past Bond scores. I watched some of the movies and had general notes and impressions about how the music was operating. But after that, I didn't want to be too studious about it all. I thought that would be intimidating and suppressing my ability. So, uh, yeah, so he basically just followed his followed his nose and uh, came up with what um, what he, what he did. He uses the Bond theme uh, quite well, I think. Obviously, they had held back on using it a little bit in um, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, but he used it a bit more front and centre. So after he did Skyfall, he did uh, Side Effects with Steven Soderbergh and Saving Mr. Banks. And then in 2015, he did The Bridge of Spies, where he stepped in to score the movie for Steven Spielberg after John Williams was busy doing Star Wars. That was John Williams repaying the favour to Alfred Newman for getting him into the industry. When Steven Spielberg asked him who should do it, if you can't do it, he said Thomas Newman instantly. So, uh, yeah, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So we return to Spectre and again, we'll cover his score for Spectre on that on the podcast when we get to that letter. But uh, interestingly, because he'd done Skyfall, um, you find in Spectre that he 
reprises several cues for different characters, which means some of the characters have um, their own sort of themes in Spectre, including Money Penny, Q and M, um, which is kind of interesting um, because we haven't really had that before. So since then, he did the score for Finding Dory, 1917 and Operation Mincemeat, which is the 2022 film about Ian Fleming's operation in the war. So that's quite interesting link there for him. So like I said, he's been nominated 50 for 15 Academy Awards, um, which uh, but has never won, which makes him the... Um, it ties with the composer Alex North for being the most nominations without a win uh, in the composing category. He's been nominated for four Golden Globes, has won two BAFTAs, six Grammys and an Emmy Award. And one more thing about Thomas Newman and his family... His family, the Newmans, are the the most nominated family in Hollywood history. So they've got 95 nominations between them uh, for film scoring, arrangement or original song. Mm. So in terms of the scores uh, for Skyfall and Spectre, what do you guys think? Do they, do they jump out at you? No. No, but that's not also that's also not a bad thing. No, not necessarily. It's not one. They're it's not, not ones it's that not I listen a, to. No, the I, ones that I, jump out to Brendan are normally the bad ones. Eric Serra, remember. Eric Serra is the one that jumps out to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, this this is fine. It it does the does the job, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not it's not offensive, but I'm not going to listen to it outside of uh, outside yeah. of it. Like, unlike the Casino Royale one, which I I listen to outside of the film. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of works with the films, isn't it? Those films are designed to be main mainstream and people watching them. They're not mm. too they're not risky. Yeah, um, yeah. I think they're probably work well. I've, I've never thought about the soundtrack for either of them. Here we go, Thomas Newman. Coffee, medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko fi dot com forward slash james bond a to z where you can buy us a coffee for just three pounds or for three pounds a month thanks for listening back to the show is that all it does and it's for norman monty norman hey. um a man who needs no introduction although i'm going to give one um <laughs> because he is so intrinsically linked with the story of bond um, from its inception, from Doctor No, um, but not—it's not a simple story. Um, so Monty Norman—he was born in 1928. He's still alive, so he's 94 now. Uh, he's a singer, he's a composer, um, and he's best known for not just for us, but for for anyone who knows Monty Norman for composing the James Bond theme, or and that's in commons. James Bond theme because there's another the James Bond theme which is not to be confused with it um, he was born in Stepney in London um, and he was a child during uh, World War Two. he was evacuated from London um, and uh, but returned during the Blitz uh, he did a bit of national service in the RAF um, and then he went on to uh, where he started his interest in pursuing a career in singing at that point so in the 1950s and 60s he he was a singer in a lot of bands um i don't know any of these people cyril stapleton stanley black ted heath um but he also performed at a lot of variety shows 
And um, so he worked, apparently shared top billing with a lot of these people. And there's some big names, Benny Hill, Harry Seacombe, Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, uh, Tommy Cooper, Tony Hancock, Max Miller. So big deal. Did some pretty cool stuff back in his singing days. And the biggest success he had over that period was a song called False Hearted Lover. He, around the late 50s, he started moving more towards the composition side of music as opposed to the singing side. Um, And he started working on stuff for people like Cliff Richard, Tommy Steele and Bob Hope, uh, as well as lyrics for musicals and things as well. He wrote a number of uh, lyrics for musicals. I don't know many of these, actually. Um, Make Me an Offer, uh, Irma La Douce, which is a, a English version of a French musical, um, Expresso Bongo. Um, that sounds good. Which is apparently... Sorry? That sounds good. Yeah, apparently Time Out said it was the first rock and roll musical. Has that got Cliff Richard um, in it? Yes, it has. How do you know that? Uh, I've heard... Uh, wasn't there a movie... Yeah, I think it was made into a movie that starred Cliff Richard. I don't know why I know that. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, and that was written by uh, Wolf Mankiewicz. And yeah, so later, I'm not going to go through all the things he's done because they're very old and I don't really know a lot of them. So he was also nominated for an Ivor Novello Award uh, and won the SWET Award, which was renamed the Laurence Olivier Award uh, for Best Musical. I think that was for something called Poppy in 1982. He also worked on two, fa- worked on two faces of Dr. Jekyll and Call Me Buana. Hey. There we go. Not mentioned Tommy Buana for a bit. Two episodes, maybe. <laughs> um, so uh, so this is around the time where, obviously, he started getting involved in the world of Bond. Um, so he was working on a musical called Bell or the Ballad of Dr. Crippen in 1961, uh, which apparently didn't do very well. It got panned by the critics. Um, but Cubby Broccoli was one of the investors on this film. Uh, it's an interesting interview that he's done it's on YouTube where he talks about it. Um, and so because of that, Cubby remembered him and invited him to, to do the music for Dr. No. Uh, but he wasn't interested in doing it. And this this crops up quite a bit when we talk about the people that were trying to get involved in Dr. No. It wasn't an easy sell for a lot of the time to get people to get involved in that film because obviously it was a new film, didn't have a massive budget, nobody knew what it was, wasn't a tried and tested thing. So it, it wasn't actually like, yes, I'll do it, I can't wait. It was more like, yeah, I didn't really want to do that. But... Saltzman invited him and his wife to go to Jamaica to like do all the on-location stuff with everyone else who went. Um, and under the sort of proviso that he learns how Jamaican music works and starts putting that into his his um, score. So, um, yeah, he went over there, loved it. Big deal. Quite a nice treat. Um, significantly more so than nowadays. Like if you get him sent over to Jamaica for an all-expenses-paid trip with your wife, that's a that's a lot of money back in those days, and a lot of people probably never get the opportunity to do that. Yeah, he he's credited with um, creating the James Bond theme, and he has, since 1962, received all the royalties for the song. But uh, So I think I read somewhere it was like 485,000 in royalties up until 1999 um, for Dr. No. Um, now, I've, I've read some different things about this, but... Um, Apparently, they got Bjorn Barry in to rearrange the theme because they weren't happy with it. But I did. I think I read somewhere that it was actually much more collaborative than that. Like uh, Norman was actually working with Barry on it as opposed to it being more of a sort of rehash. Um, and apparently Barry later on said that he, he it was him who wrote the theme. Um, 
and as a result, there were two libel cases off the back of it. Uh, the last one of those was in 2001, and that was with the Sunday Times. Um, and he, he, he won both of those cases. So uh, he, he, he received damages or whatever you get after a libel case that says that that they weren't true um so he's still classed as the as the um writer of the the james bond theme and you will see him on you know scores and things like that you'll see his name still on there so yeah uh he he's done he's done quite a few musicals um pinocchio 1988 poppy i mentioned stand and deliver um none of which i know um but uh yeah so after so he didn't do any more bond stuff after that he's really only famous for creating that song um, but he did continue to do quite a lot of music after that as well. Um, I read, I, there's one interesting story I found out. Uh, I say story, it's more of a comment that he made. But when uh, Morris Binder was pulling together the title sequence for it, he, he started playing around the music, started like changing it slightly so that it worked better with the title. Monty Norman didn't like that. He was he, he said uh, he had he had a row with him apparently um, because he wanted the theme to be played exactly as he'd done it and not sort of played in if you remember the Doctor No thing it's got sort of jumps around and there's different bits of music that go on it and stuff like that it's not played in its entirety it's almost like a sort of, sort of a short it's like a medley isn't it a medley yeah um, but he said um, you're ruining it you're absolutely ruining it uh, and then sent a couple of letters spoke to Cubby and uh, Harry about it and then he says uh, but you know they were right <laughs> um, so sort of conceded that, that that Morris Binder had done a good job with that. Then from 2004, Monty Norman's been working on an autobiography called A Walking Stick Full of Bagels. <laughs> now, I don't believe this exists yet. Um, I couldn't find any information about it. I sort of saw a couple of references, so I don't think it's finished. It sounds interesting. I have no idea what it means. Walking I've kind of got to read it just to find out what, what, what the bagels, reasoning for that yeah. title is. But yeah, Monty Norman, interesting character and one that so synonymous with the Bond series, but really wasn't, you know, that involved for the, a lot of it. It just goes to show that you do one really important thing and it just sticks to it for decades. Yeah, the theme is based off a, a musical he'd written called Good Sign, Bad Sign. I was going to say. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, that, and, and that's available on YouTube. You can listen to that. What it um, originally sounded like. Oh, I remember we spoke about that, didn't we, in the Doctor No episode? Yeah. Um, and, and it's a it's like an Indian type um, song, isn't it? It is, yeah. Played on yeah. Indian things, and when you hear it in that version, it's very hard to then unhear it in the in the one you get in the movie. Mm. Um, that sort of um, Eastern influence, and that's probably why it makes it so memorable, isn't it? It's like it's like unusual rhythms. unlucky sneeze and what is worse I came into the world the wrong way round pundits all agreed that I'm the reason why my father fell into the village pond and drowned but yeah. it's, it's interesting that, does that mean every time John Barry used that theme he didn't get any money for it is that right well, I, I can't remember which episode it was recently, but there, I read somewhere that John Barry would have to, when they were writing the score for it, John Barry would have to mark on the score which bits were Monty Norman's and which bits were right. his, which is why he became so loath to use Monty Norman's because obviously mm. that would yeah. mean more money going to Monty Norman than it would 
to him. So um, that explains why he created a new one for for the, from Rush with, Rush with Love. Yeah, yeah. And Christ, you'd never you'd never want to work with somebody on a on a song, would you? It's so complicated. No, mm. uh, but it, it, the problem is, it's one of those. It's, it's almost a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? For 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 the song, it couldn't have existed without Monty Norman. Yeah, but it yeah. wouldn't be what it is today without John Barry. Yeah, seems a bit unfair, yeah. doesn't it? So it's it's very difficult. Similar yeah. argument to like Thunderball script. Yes, and and also Lennon McCartney. It's it's. it's I was gonna yeah. just gonna say Lennon and McCartney is is a good one, yeah. um, because so, all, so the, go no, just they did they did write separately, um, but mm. it was the combination of the two together that gave that was the alchemy. And I think that's the same with the James Bond theme song. Um, that's the, the moral of the story: never collaborate with anyone on anything. Makes life easier. <laughs> I mean, that's you one take way. Take anything at from it. this podcast. There's your, there's your wisdom. <laughs> so there you go. That's Monty Norman. Big name, big song. <laughs> Good grief. N is for Nomi. So Nomi. Played by Lashana Lynch in No Time to Die, is also known as 007. After the retirement of Bond, Nomi is given the role and codename 007. So, in terms of the plot of the film, uh, a scientist has gone missing, Valdo Obrichev. Nomi is basically sort of following Bond in disguise at a bar she introduces herself as a new 007 there's a back and forth about that you know her her status and he says it's just a number bond gets back to britain gets to the headquarters of mi6 and frustrates nomi because he has a, a secret briefing and obviously it's difficult because you've got the old 007 there and the current 007 and then in what i think is a a bit of a weakness to the character when she gives him back his number it's, I don't really like it that happens and they sort of all team up this is where we get the Avengers style or mystery gang style Bond Nomi Q Moneypenny M so yeah Nomi goes out to the Safin secret base Nomi tracks down Obachev by this point Nomi and Bond have created a bit of an alliance so Bond gives Nomi the job of escorting Madeline. To, and their daughter to safety. Uh, Nomi does this and then gives them cover until uh, until they can be rescued. And then after James Bond's death, Nomi M, Q, Money Penny all share a drink to his memory. What? 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 Where do they go with this? Stop it! Stop it! Start <laughs> again. Spin off. Um, so Lashana Lynch, born uh, November nineteen eighty seven. Uh, was born in Hammersmith in London. She attended Arts Ed Drama School in London. Um, and she actually made a film debut in a film called Fast Girls in 2012, which was uh, first showed at the Cannes Film Festival in, in the same year. And then she was in a BBC film, TV film, called The 739, which starred David Morrissey and Olivia Colman. They've got a good cast, Sheridan Smith's in it as well. 2016, she was cast as the lead character in an American series called Still Starcrossed. Seen that? Nope. Never even heard of it. She plays a character called Rosaline Capulet. Good name. But in in 2019, this is one we probably will know her. She played Maria Rambo in in Captain Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. Her character is an Air Force pilot. 
and the mother of Monica Rambeau, who then goes on to One become... Division. Yeah. Yep, who then goes on into, into, uh, to be a character in the MCU. Then in 2022, she plays the Earth 838 variant of Maria Rambeau, who is actually Captain Marvel in that multiverse, yep. in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Oh, spoilers. Ugh. Um, <laughs> in January 2021, it was announced that uh, she would play Miss Honey in Matilda, the musical, which is set for release in December 2022. The film? Yeah. yeah they're doing a musical film, yeah. On Netflix. It's a music. It's oh, the course. movie of the musical. Movie of the musical. Uh, it's ne- right, Netflix get, worldwide, but UK, it's getting a theatrical release. So... Mm. Emma Thompson is Miss Trunchbull. She is indeed. Yeah, she won the BAFTA Rising Star in 2022. So very recently, that's yeah, a few months ago. Mm. In terms of other things she's been in, in 2007 she was in The Bill. Yes. Oh, now we're talking. Yes. She started with that. <laughs> she's also been in an episode of Silent Witness, Death in Paradise, and Doctors. Wow, yes. what a resume. Well, what a resume. You've got, this is, you've got to do this sort of stuff, haven't you? This is the, and, and you've, and your crust. She's not been in Emmerdale? She hasn't, no. Oh, shame. She said about uh, Bond, when I was only months old, my dad would sit me down under his arm on the couch and make me watch Bond. So there you go. That was her first. Well, I, unfair, I, I would like to know which Bond. That's my. Sounds, sounds a little bit... Um... <laughs> Forcing people to watch Bond. I mean, I've tried that, but I always feel bad. <laughs> um, and then in terms of on, on playing the characters, she said, when you're dealing with a franchise that has been slick for so many years, I wanted to throw a human spin on it to deal with anxiety and be someone who's figuring it out completely on her toes. And so that comes across in her character. She's she's kind of cocky, but uh, it comes from a from a from a place of uncertainty, doesn't it? Yeah, insecurity as well. Yeah, she's yeah. always watching, watching what Bond is doing and wanting to, yeah, sort of one up him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she also praises Phoebe Waller-Bridge, her input to the script, sort of fleshing it out. Mm. Yeah, thoughts on Nomi? I like her. I think she's good. A good addition to the series. I think she's all right. I uh, wasn't blown away by her. No, I think the, the star of the show was Paloma. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the that's the problem. I think she gets outshone. Sadly, it's just, it's just it's too much unnecessary. The old 007 name thing. It's like, yeah, we get the point, and then yeah. keep dragging it out. Yeah, and it would have been I, far I, better for her to kept 007. Yeah, but it wouldn't make sense. He's got to be returned as 007, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean the yeah. word, the, the name 007 doesn't mean anything to anyone outside of. No, so that's why it's nonsense. The movie like universe, yeah. Unless, when, unless you're when, referencing that there are Bond films in in when the Bond you're in a universe. Life or death scenario where there's people trying to kill you. Don't change your code name to the same one that someone else has got just before you do it. Because yeah. somebody shouts 007 and they turn around, and it's the wrong one. Yeah. Oh, sorry, got shot. <laughs> Bad agent. So Bad what, agent. where where do, where do you think that? Do you think they bring this character back? I, I think, think that's it. Nah. I think there's potential too, but whether they whether they will do or not, mm. if, we just don't if, know, do if, we? If the the gates are open to the world of spin-offs, I think Nomi's probably quite high on the list. Mm. Yeah. If yeah, if that's the world that they want to explore, the world of MI6 and what have you. But yeah, no, I think she's fine. Um, I think she's uh, she, she's obviously quite capable in the final scenes, but then 
just gets shipped off the island, doesn't she? It's kind yeah. of an ignominious end for her, um, mm. I think. But uh, up to that point, I thought she's quite entertaining. Should we move on to the final section? Yes. yes. Right, this is a good one. N is for no. Dr. No. Dr. Julius No, in fact. Um, although the name Dr. Julius No isn't mentioned at all in the film. He's just known as Dr. No. But he's the villain in 1962's Dr. No, played by Joseph Wiseman. He is obviously very important because he's the first movie Bond villain. And I would say arguably one of the most influential of the Bond villains mm. in terms of what came after... Uh, the spoofs that it inspired, um, I'd say he's probably the most prolific of the bad guys to get a spoof ripoff version of in outside the Bond world, except perhaps, you know, Blofeld and Goldfinger to a lesser extent. But uh, Dr. No is he, he's a big one in the book. He's, he's quite different um, in the book. He's extremely tall and thin with a round head and a pointed chin, um, which James Bond uh, describes to himself as a reverse teardrop. And his hands, they have been cut off in the books, uh, but he's got metal pincers in the book rather than the black metal hands that we see in the movie. Um, and in both versions, his hands had been cut off by Chinese triads who he'd got mixed up with early in his career. Obviously, we know from our Dr. No episode that they toyed with the idea of making Dr. No a monkey. Um, so please see previous episodes for, for more detail on that. Um, Ian Fleming... Uh, suggested that Noel Coward should play Dr. No in the movie, but he turned it down with the famous uh, telegram, Dr. No, 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 no. So the role went to Joseph Wiseman, who was a Canadian actor uh, that Harry Saltzman was a fan of. He had been in something called Detective Story, and that was a, 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 a part that was very, very important to Joseph Wiseman's career. There's very, very few quotes of Joseph Wiseman talking about Dr. No or how he got into it. But this is the one that does the rounds. It said, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. I had no idea the film would achieve the success it did. As far as I was concerned, I thought it might be just another grade B Charlie Chan mystery. So uh, he was born in Montreal, Canada in 1918. Um uh, Orthodox Jewish, Jewish parents and was raised in New York City and he started his acting career in, in something called Abe Lincoln in Illinois in 1938 and became quite a successful stage actor but it was his breakthrough in th this play Sidney Kingsley's detective story um, that was then turned into a movie in 1951 that, that was the one that caught um, Harry Saltzman's attention. He plays like a, a criminal in it. Um, it's quite, an, a, quite a, a bold uh, performance by all accounts. I haven't seen it myself. He then went on to star in a number of movies, including El uh, Elia Kazan's Viva Zapata uh, opposite Marlon Brando um, and lots of other movies. I've never really heard of them before, but uh, then he landed Dr. No for 1962, um, obviously, there's some controversy around around him playing, um, playing the character because he's, you know, a white American or Canadian. Latter controversy. Sorry, latter controversy. Latter day controversy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly, I was reading some quotes from Lee Pfeiffer, one of the uh, authors of many of the Bond encyclopedias and, and books, and he said the Bond producers were guilty of the widespread practice that still exists today casting Caucasian actors in key roles as Asian characters. However, the film demanded an experienced, well-known character actor. 
and there simply weren't as many Asian actors at the time and with the kind of name recognition that Joseph Wiseman had. Um, so, yeah, that's all I can say. I mean, obviously, he has like uh, facial prosthetics and a sort of a interesting haircut um, um, to make him look Asian. But uh, it's not, I don't think it's ever that convincing, is it? No, I didn't even know. Like, I didn't. It took me years to realise what that he's supposed to be to Chinese. Do. Yeah, yeah. It just looks like a weird man. Yeah. Mm. So after after Doctor No, he took a, a quite long break from making movies and then returned to make a lot of lot of movies in quick succession. Um, and he also enjoyed a, a successful stage and TV career. And some of his TV roles include um, The Untouchables, Crime Story, The Twilight Zone, Magnum. P. Magnum P.I. Uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century and something called Night Gallery. Um, no, no Bill? No, the Bill, no. <laughs> right, okay. that would have been fantastic. <laughs> his, his last film was released in 1988, uh, but after he did make some more TV appearances, including appearing in MacGyver, L.A. Law and Law and Order. And his last uh, appearance on TV was in um, Law and Order in 1996. But his last Broadway appearance was uh, in something called In Judgment at Nuremberg, which was in 2001. So he was acting till till quite an old age. Um, and he, but he very, very, very rarely spoke about his work on James Bond playing Dr. No. Um, I did read one tribute online that said that Joseph Weidman, Wiseman had appeared at an event that was honouring Sean Connery in the 1990s. And he spoke um, at, at this event very fondly of his time working with Sean Connery on Dr. No and working on that film, but there's no recording of that. So um, I don't know exactly what he said, but it uh, seems like he looked back on it affectionately. And I just don't think he ever um, really sat down for a lengthy interview about his time as Dr. No. So a lot of it's a bit of a mystery. Um, and he, he died in 2009, age 91. So he, like I said, he does have a massive legacy, though. Um, so obviously, we do get references to Doctor No in From Russia with Love, because it's the reason that Spectre is out to seek revenge on Bond. Um, we also see Doctor No in the title se- sequence or the titles for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, along with Goldfinger and a bunch of other things from previous Bond films. Um, and here we go: Doctor No appears in the cartoon series James Bond Junior. Have you seen this? Nice. No, I don't. Not that I don't remember that episode. <laughs> you would. I need to send you this picture of Doctor No. He's basically bright green. Um, yep, yep, he's got yep. like he looks like Fu Manchu. He's got like a mullet and a mustache. I do remember him yeah. when I was researching my very long quiz about. Uh, um, yes, James Bond Junior. I did look through pictures. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. So that at is at least it wasn't. Uh, at least they removed some of the. Racial issues. Yes, <laughs> making him green. Um, Doctor No also appears in Golden, the video game Golden Eye Rogue Agent. Um, he's a multiplayer character in the game 007 from Russia with Love, and a multiplayer character in the 2010 version of Golden Eye for the Nintendo Wii. And in our second mention of a Heineken commercial. Dr. No appears in the 2012 Heineken commercial with Daniel Craig and Berenice Marlowe, uh, the Crack the Code one. That's the one on the train. We talked about that on the Daniel Craig episode, I believe, way back when. Yes, yes. Um, and the character of Dr. No appeared in a 1976 Daily Express James Bond comic called Hot Shot. 
um, in which he survived um, Crab Key and went on to live on uh, in disguise, uh, running a new crime syndicate. Um, and of course, he's well remembered for Alan Partridge's reference to Dr. No Vocal Cords. <laughs> Um, other pop culture references include the 67 Bond spoof Casino Royale. Uh, there is a character, Dr. Noah. Mm-hmm. And in the video game, James Pond. Yes. The villain is Dr. Maybe. <laughs> Very good. And Very good. this is one I never really cl- clicked before, but Dr. Claw in Inspector Gadget. Kind of inspired mm. by Dr. No with the metal hands yeah. and... Uh, He's sort of a mixture between Doctor No and Blofeld, isn't he? Yeah, he's got a cat, hasn't he? Yeah. 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 Hmm. So never really considered that. But um, Doctor No, like I said, one of the most influential Bond villains. And having seen it on the big screen recently, I have to say he's risen up in my rankings of favourite Bond villains. Yeah, he's great. I think he, he does, with the limited amount of time he's got on screen, he does fantastic. Yeah. Well, he's just—he's just not ridiculous. It's believable. Mm. Like he's—he's he's got a plan. He wants to do it. He's not taking any nonsense of, around it, and yeah. it's a pretty good plan. I think. Also, I think how calm and composed he is when he's at the meal with Bond. It's the stillness, it just, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Although the fight at the end is those arms are <laughs> useless. <laughs> he's fighting Connery at the end of it, and it's like whacking him with his arms. Nothing. Not doing anything. No. <laughs> But that scene at the dinner table is chilling uh, and mm. the way he sort of the stillness to him and how he delivers yeah. it, it's just it's unearthly, isn't it? It's, yeah. um, it's uncanny. Yeah. Uh, it's spooky. Um, yeah. he's, he, he's brimming with menace. Um, he really does make the most of it. And I also love that scene where um, they knock Bond and um, uh, uh, what's her name? Hon- honey out uh, in the bed with the coffee. Yeah, and he yeah. comes into the room while they're sleeping, and you haven't seen him yet, but you mm. get the shadow across the floor, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he just sort of glides into the room, takes a look at them sleeping. It's just such a menacing. The way he well, lifts the it, cover as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, you get that that cool scene where he's speaking to Professor Dent. Yeah. And it's like the Misterons. Yes, the Misterons. <laughs> oh, talking to him. Brilliant seeing that because he, it's just his voice, and then it's doing that camera zoom in on him. Uh, yeah, that's a nice, nice, it's a good way to set up a villain because it's quite mysterious and scary from the off. It's not like, you know, there's no mysterious setup for uh, what's his face in You Only Live Twice. Not You Only Live Twice, Times Are Forever. No, Blofeld. I mean, he's obviously just, he's there front and centre, isn't he? Isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, Ridiculous straight. Well, no, he's got doing the voice, isn't he? Stupid voice. But yeah, I mean, I wonder also when you look at Doctor No, he's got the sort of the the collar, collarless jacket, the Nehru jacket, hasn't he? It's sort of a precursor to what um, Blofeld wears, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So you're almost getting a Blofeld here. I guess he's sort of um, um, like a bit uh, end of level boss before you get to Blofeld, isn't he? Um, yeah. Maybe it's Spectre. Um, I guess it's inspired by Chairman Mao. Yeah. Was he number two, Doctor No? I mean, he was a bit of a number two, wasn't he? <laughs> I think he I'm is. sure. I'm sure he was higher up than some of the other people that sat around that table. I think he must be a number. He must. He must be number two. Yeah. All the Spectre nerds out there will be shaking their fists at us now. <laughs> ah, but that is Doctor Julius No, one of my all-time favourites. I think so. That just about wraps up this episode uh, under the letter N. But we do have two more episodes to come under the letter N. What are they, guys? 
Never say never again. That, that will be next. No time to die. And No Time to Die. Yeah, the most recent James Bond film. Quite excited to stuck, get stuck into both of those. Interesting ones to do back to back. So, yeah, very excited to, to get stuck into those. Um, yeah, I bet nobody's watched those two back to back. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's not a double matter now, is it? It's no. not, it's not a, dub, a double bill. Um, as always, in fact, not as always, but... Um, uh, something we don't often ask, but if you could leave us a, a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, uh, on Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, ratings always really help to spread the word of the podcast, helps other people find us. Um, so if you're enjoying the show, please consider taking the time to do that. It only takes a second. Um, other ways of supporting the show include following us on social media. Where can they do that? On Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at JamesBond A to Z. We've also got a coffee page if you'd like to donate some money. It's ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z where you can buy us a coffee for £3 and uh, that's a one-off payment. Or you can subscribe and, and do it as a monthly payment, which I know some people have done. So that's really, really uh, gratefully received and we will use it to, um, yeah. Buy coffee. Buy coffee, absolutely. We love coffee. Part of the deal, isn't it? Is it is the deal, yeah. Um, <laughs> and also we've got a t-shirt store um, and that link is on our uh, social media platforms and in, in the show notes as well so uh, yeah you can buy a t-shirt there if you'd so desire so if people want to email the show and let us know podcast at jamesbondatorz.co.uk and yeah so that just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week ciao oh bye then ciao James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Unfortunately, I misjudged you. You are just a stupid policeman. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.